Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Hyper Theory podcast, a new podcast exploring philosophy, science, art, and more. Today, we're joined by Andreas Gomez Emelson, who is a consciousness scientist slash philosopher slash a word doesn't even exist. He runs the Qualia Research Institute in San Francisco, which is a research center that is aiming to revolutionize the future science of consciousness. This is beyond our current understandings of neuroscience and psychology and looking to figure out how it is that we actually feel and experience anything at all. This is what the word qualia means. We had a great chat while he stayed with me in London on Rosh Hashanah, uh, (laughs) Jewish New Year, I can say it because I'm Jewish. We spoke about lots of things, but I particularly enjoyed, as a musician, when we touched on the connection between consciousness and music. Alongside trying to develop this new science of experience, his research center exists both with the purpose to be able to eliminate suffering across the entire sentient world and to attempt to explore, access, and create previously unexperienced realms of consciousness. This is Hyper Theory, Episode 1, Andreas Gomez Emelson. So, we've been hanging out for a few hours, but oh no, re say hello. Hello, good to meet you, Alex. Thank you for <laughs> letting me stay at your place. Yeah, yeah, very convenient. Very welcome. Would you introduce yourself to me? Yeah, yeah. For the sake of the, of the audience. people that may be present. My name is Andres Gomez Emilson, uh, one of the co-founders of the Qualia Research Institute, where we study consciousness from a point of view of philosophy of mind, neuroscience, and neurotechnology. And we follow, yeah, the abolitionist project. I mean, the objective of getting rid of suffering in the long-term future and I work on figuring out how to get rid of intense suffering, increase baseline, and achieve new heights of happiness. Okay. Wow. <laughs> so how did you how did you come to to this? How did you get here? Well, I was what I I mean I describe myself as hyper philosophical. Yeah. I, I get a bit the feeling you're probably also on, on the spectrum of hyper philosophia. <laughs> <laughs> kind yeah. of uh, always wondering about the nature of reality and who I am and <laughs> why we're here. Yeah, I may, may I may be may potentially be <laughs> be, be, be susceptible to to that, yes. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> for for a long time I just thought like yeah physics and science would just get all the answers. Yeah. But um, did you have like a, like a militant sort of atheist phase, like a Richard Dawkins type? Oh, totally. Yeah. 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 I feel like it's a rite of passage. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think probably between the ages of like 12 and 16. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I love, there's like a, a cassette. I don't know if it's for real, but like I saw it on Reddit, like, a little cassette that says like the Bible as read by a smug 14 year old atheist or something like that. (laughs) 
yeah. So then you became disillusioned by this or no, well, something else? I tried marijuana and I had an ego death, mm-hmm. which was like kind of unusual. I mean, it hasn't happened since. It happened once for whatever reason. I mean, I've taken marijuana many times, but yeah. When I was 16, just like yeah, the fourth time I tried weed, just my ego dissolved. I quote unquote kind of became like an infinite ocean of consciousness. It was very yeah. strange. But uh, it's not that like, I think like a lot of people would probably have that experience and they would be just convinced that like, oh my God, like I am the ocean of consciousness <laughs> or something. Sure. Yeah. For me, it was more like a proof of concept that my original feeling of identity was just one of many possible identities. So you were still beta testing the infinity of consciousness. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. But it was like a very strong feeling of like oneness. It was yeah. like, well, we're all the same sea of consciousness. But did it feel like it was something that you were becoming or did it feel like it was something that you already were? It felt like it had always been that. Yeah. But I would forget or something like mm-hmm. that. Like, like... I mean, the image was like, I was in a, I, th- I first saw myself as a little box. And then I noticed there was like an ocean of consciousness inside the box. Yeah. And then I realized it was also outside the box. And then I realized it was the same. And it was the box. <laughs> and it was also the box. Yes. Yeah. And then my friend was also a box. Yeah. But with the same emotion inside. But also all the space outside the box. Exactly. Well. Yeah. It's a very Hindu. I mean, it's like. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're really talking about like you're a balloon, then the balloon pops, and the air inside sure. and outside was already the same air anyway. Yeah. Well, in Hinduism as well, the term yoga, you know, people mistake it as meaning as, as deriving from yoke, you know, to bring together, but that's not actually what the word means. The right. word means like the recollection oh. of the constantly existing oneness of yourself and the infinite. Universe, yeah, which is primarily conscious because in Asian sort of metaphysics, consciousness is inbuilt into notions of the physical world. The two are interrelated fundamentally. Like whenever you're looking into the universe, you're also looking into the mind and the the, the soul or whatever the atman, whatever you want to call it. Yoga, you know, not not like half a yoga, not stretching. Like the, the practices of, of yoga the path of being being a Hindu, which is like a Western way of, of interpreting. Like they weren't calling themselves Hindus. These people sort of how many thousands years ago in the forest universities that we've, we've clumped together to now determine as Hinduism. This, this path that they've sort of drawn out and encouraged for people. The practice of it, it means remembering. It means recalling you're already connected. So you're not trying to gain a connection. You're not trying to become one with the universe you're just remembering that you already are mm. um, yeah so that's that seems like a similar yeah scaffolding for your experience yeah yeah very much so it was very confusing but there was yeah that sense of remembering definitely it's like ah oh, this this again like of course like yeah 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 i definitely had those yeah those kinds of experiences myself it reminds me as well of the kind yeah. of platonic realm of forms, you know, like, and, and the theory goes that, that Plato was like taking psychedelics as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, not to overemphasize like, you know, the 
the, the tool is just the tool. It's not, you know, the, the outcome. But yeah, they, at the Eleusian Mysteries where Plato and a bunch of others would, would come and congregate, there's not much information about what they would do, but there's like a re- recording that they would drink something called, maybe mispronouncing this, but called Kaikion. Huh. Which, when they've they've done sort of uh, physical analysis of the bowls and stuff that they had, they found that it had ergot in it, so it would oh. have had like mm-hmm. LSD <laughs> type LSD properties. Like, yeah, um, and so yeah, this Platonic idea, Plato's idea that all knowledge is remembering that we we can't learn anything new. That every time we gain an insight or an understanding, we're remembering something from before before we were born we were in this eternal realm of forms the forms are the essential i'm sure you know all this but you know the essential components of reality and yeah i don't know just that uh, experience seems seems similar to that kind of both the hindu idea and that kind of trippy platonic idea of we have experienced everything before and always almost and so when we come to understanding we're just we're just remembering we're just Mm -hmm. going going back to a place almost that we've been to. But yeah, anyway, please continue. No, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, essentially I realized like, well, the, the feeling of who I am is an adjustable parameter. You know, it's just one of many, right? Yeah. And then uh, it's not that I became convinced right away that we are all one, but uh, I realized, well, that's a possible way of feeling the world. And then I thought like, well, okay, let's do a serious philosophy and see if we can prove that we are all one in a more rigorous way. I ended up having like some, what I thought like were pretty compelling arguments based on continuity, the absence of a possible, what I called the uh, identity carrier. And I thought, I mean, essentially even before like reading other people's work and on the matter, yeah, kind of like the whole argument of the sheep of the CEOs and then like thought experiments about mind melding and mm-hmm duplication and uh, teleportation and <laughs> concluding that like, well, actually it, it makes no sense for an individual to, to actually be fundamentally separate yeah. from the rest of the universe. And then I think for like about four years, my life mission was like, well, I'm going to convince everybody that we're all one consciousness and that's just going to solve the problems of the world. That yeah, was hippie fuck. Yeah, yeah, super <laughs> But without knowing that it was like a well-trodden path. Like, yeah. Or like that Hinduism was a thing. Like I was so ignorant of all of that. Yeah. Of course, then I yeah learned about that, read the Bhagavad Gita, mm-hmm. um, you know, we had like that phase. But then, you know, in parallel, I think like, Around the age of 17, I encountered David Pierce's writings. Mm-hmm. But then it wasn't until like I was 20, 21 that I, I actually met him. Took his writings way more seriously. Yeah. And then I, I just shifted because, I mean, of course, like I think like personal identity is like a very, very important topic. Yeah. But I just realized, I mean, like the, the big realization is if you suffer from chronic pain, it doesn't matter if you realize we're all one. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Still... Or how amazing it is for you or I to have this, you know, incredible understanding and experience that we're all one, but then there's like tens of thousands of people dying of malaria like yeah. constantly. And <laughs> it's a more pressing, urgent thing to attend to. So just to our listeners, obviously, David, David Pierce is like a huge inspiration for both of us, personal friend. Very lucky to, to be able to know him as a great 
it's a strange combination, both an incredibly inspiring thinker and just a great guy. <laughs> but yeah, to our, to our audience, who is David Pierce? What, what is, what is yeah. Piercean philosophy? What, what about it struck you? I encountered him actually by searching about psychedelics. And I think like it was like, oh, like, what are like intelligent writings about like LSD or mm-hmm. something? Mm-hmm. And I think I encountered a good drug guide, yeah. which uh, he wrote. I mean, essentially, yeah, he was trying to write something practical that people could use to improve their their well-being that goes beyond kind of like psychiatry advice and psychiatry prescription drugs. Essentially, it's just like a very, very good critical outlook on what are the drugs available for treating various kinds of mood disorders and, and pain issues. Um, One sec, sorry, yeah. I'm just going to have to pause it for a second because I'm running out of um, memory. Oh, I'm just no, going to delete uh, yeah. some stuff. <laughs> cool. All right. We're back in business. Awesome. All right. So you got some extra space. Yeah. Which is ironic in that like it translates into time. Yeah. So extra time. Extra yeah, 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 yeah. We've just computationally proved that Einstein was right. Exactly. <laughs> Space and time are one. Okay, so you were saying you discovered David Pierce. Yeah. We were talking about who who is David Pierce, what yeah. are his ideas, and you were talking about the good drug guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, essentially, it just sounded like very no-nonsense advice, very, very reasonable, very well-researched. And it just like ends with this like, very incredible quote, kind of like, working towards a drug-free future, which is kind of uh, hilarious. Like after, yeah. after he talks about all of these drugs, right? And, yeah. and he just says, like, yeah, yeah in, the, in the future, ideally, we will be genetically engineered such that our default baseline will be so good, the thought of contaminating it with uh, external drugs will just not occur to us. Will, mm-hmm. Taking any drug will just be immoral, actually, because it's just going to perturb you from your optimal state. Yeah. I thought that was like very compelling. I, I hadn't heard of anybody think like that. I mean, honestly, I think like at the time already, I was yeah pretty contrarian when it comes to things like genetic engineering. Like I thought people's arguments against it weren't very compelling. So I, I think I already had kind of like some proclivities towards yeah. like accepting that sort of argumentation. But uh, that was just kind of like my first encounter. But then like at the age of 20 or 21, I, I read way more from his stuff. Like the hedonistic imperative mm-hmm. is his main or his starting work. I also read opioids.com. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I recommend. Oh, and MDMA.net. Yeah, yeah. What else is there that, that, that he owns? He sold weed.com, I believe. He had weed.com. I believe, yeah. Oh, he sold, my I gosh. Weed.com, something like that. And he sold it. I hope he's okay with me for, for a large sum of money and mm-hmm. then was just able to take his friends on a trip at the Galapagos. Oh, he hasn't told me that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll yeah. have to ask him. Yeah, I mean, aside from obviously, at least I think well, you and I are in agreement that his ideas, you know, there's some of the strongest, most important ideas in the contemporary thought space. Aside from that, in terms of like just being savvy and a genius, like, he invested in the internet <laughs> before, you know, when, when the internet was becoming a thing and he bought all the drug domain, domains yes. and tons of other 
domains and servers and that's sort of how he's managed to survive and get a lot of money and be very intelligent about how he was <laughs> adapting to the yeah. internet. I think he got something like 2,500 domains or something. Yeah. But yeah, very carefully selected. Things like oxycontin.com. I mean, like you would, I think like it would anticipate uh, the name of beer being like pharmaceutical drugs mm-hmm. so that, yeah, pharma representatives would then reach out to him mm-hmm. pretending to be, you know, some poor girl who's like 16 years old or something trying to get the domain for cheap. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, in practice, I think, uh, yeah, he would have to sell it much more well, like for a lot more money. But yeah, yeah, very early. I mean, like HeadWeb is kind of like the central yeah. node of the network, headweb.com. That started in 1996, right? I mean, he wrote the Hedonistic Imperative in 1995, and then mm-hmm. he started the kind of the, the empire of interconnected uh, websites. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know that much about him, like until, you know, I read a couple of his big essays and the Hedonistic Imperative, and then invited him to give a talk at, at Stanford, at the Stanford Transhumanist Association. And then, yeah, finally was able to, to talk at depth. I just found a tremendous resonance with his vision, which is getting rid of suffering. I mean, right. he, he even has like this very beautiful phrase of the world's last unpleasant experience will be a precisely dateable event. event. Yeah. So yeah, basically David's ideas are he's an abolitionist. So he believes that the, the, and argues that the, what we, ought to do what we should do is is work toward abolishing all suffering physical and mental suffering and to he believes that the way of doing that is through a confluence of neurotechnology genetic technology biotechnologies high-tech solutions to eradicating all <laughs> all the suffering yeah um you know in the same way that that he, you know he argues about anesthetic you know before anesthetic was invented the, the idea of medical procedure and operating on people with something like that was out of the question and thought of and, until it was actually invented and discovered and then once you're able to eliminate that physical pain then why on earth would you ever go back why on earth once you have anesthetic would you ever perform a surgery on someone with without anesthetic so <laughs> using that as as a kind of example for medicine as a project that is encompassing the entire world and this is the human and animal kingdom as well so he believes in paradise engineering that we should intervene so completely contrary to David Attenborough's law, <laughs> shall we call it, of uh, not intervening those kinds of traditional nature documentary style occurrences of awful, awfulness happening throughout nature. He believes we should we should intervene upon and move the natural world away from things like predation and starvation and also toward happiness and bliss and, and pleasure and meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, and then I guess the third thing is, so David is, uh, you know, negative utilitarian. So that means that to him, suffering is is more wrong than, than happiness is 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 good. However, as a kind of pressingness, you deal with the suffering first. But there is an incredible interest in bliss and happiness and super happiness and and 
varieties of experience because obviously David had a lot of experience with psychedelics and that's sort of informed, similar to what you were saying, sort of these kinds of different modalities of what consciousness could be. And yeah, so so I'd say David's ideas are threefold. One, as an abolitionist, so believes we shouldn't shy away from trying to abolish all physical mental suffering. Two, thinks that the high-tech solutions are the way to do that. And then three, additional to the elimination of suffering is the goal of the propagation of happiness and bliss yeah. for humans and for animals. So that's, that's David. <laughs> basically. It's a very good summary, I think. I think, like, personally, I mean, of course, like, he would enjoy, you know, a lot of pleasure. I think he he found MDMA to be fascinating. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, he, he will say the overriding ethical obligations to get rid of suffering. Mm-hmm. It's just that, like, pragmatically, to get uh, humans to actually, you know, work on the vision, you can't be, you know, preaching anti, anti, anti-natalism. Yeah. Like, essentially, for evolutionary selection pressures, if there's some people who are like against having kids and they don't have kids in in protest <laughs> of the of the Darwinian world, that just means that the proclivity to be compassionate will just die out. I mean, like it's kind of very counterproductive. You you just have to assume that there's gonna be life lovers and then you have to ally with them and make sure that it walks towards an ethical direction. Mm-hmm. I found that pragmatism, you know, ruthless pragmatism to be very inspiring as well. But like, you know, in retrospect, so many anti-natalists, negative utilitarians are unfortunately really kind of virtue signaling. I mean, it's uh, like they, they, yeah, sure, they're disgusted with suffering and life, but uh, they're choosing a path that will obviously not work. And if anything seems to backfire, Mm -hmm. uh, terrible PR. So (laughs) that I really appreciate that like, you know, even though he's so hardcore about like, you know, negative utilitarianism, in practice, he ends up actually looking very much like a classical utilitarian. Mm-hmm. I am not a strict negative utilitarian. Ultimately, I'm agnostic. I mean, I just think like, I mean, this is more kind of from the quality of research institute perspective, but essentially we think that we were talking about earlier, every given experience corresponds to a mathematical object. And then the features of the object will correspond to the phenomenology. Right. So basically, my understanding as someone who's not very good at maths to the audience. So the idea is that, like, as you said, you run a research institute. Yes. The Quali Research Institute. Yes. So, which is... <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, essentially, we, we have those... I mean, the mission of getting rid of intense suffering, yeah. increasing baseline and achieving new heights. But then also we do like philosophy of mind, neuroscience, and neurotech. So, yeah, so it's a, a kind of uh, combinatory philosophical scientific study into consciousness, yeah. similar to trying to basically be what chemistry was to alchemy for our current understanding of conscious experience. Exactly, yes. Um, I mean, and the current understanding of consciousness is equivalent to the alchemy of 1600 or something like that. Yeah. Like, yeah, sure, like you can mix these two chemicals, you get like something bubbly, but like, you yeah. know, what is actually going on? <laughs> we have some words that we think correspond to <laughs> the bubbles, uh, some machines that we can we can run some things through, but that's about, that's yeah. about it. Um, yeah, yeah, you can, like the concept of like acids and bases is 
is there, but like mm. we have no idea why, right? Yeah, that sort of thing. And most of the patterns between them as well. Oh, beyond that, yeah, completely, yeah, yeah. So if we think about the science of chemistry as understanding molecules, interaction between molecules, being able to talk about them, understand them, understand what they're composed of, how they interact with each other scientifically, you know, in a way that, that you can both gain meaningful knowledge about it, compare it, do things with it. The, the notion of a, of a scientific understanding of something pre-chemistry, we had alchemy and, you know, people attempting to, even Isaac Newton was, was incredibly interested in alchemy. Um, but the, it's the same goal. It's the same goal of trying to understand the physical world, trying to understand these chemicals, these molecules, how they interact with each other, trying to do things with them. But alchemy was not developed enough to understand fully in the way that we do now in chemistry, the patterns and the quantitative nature of, of chemical material that now we've been able to build a science that understands, has complex understandings and theories and, and evidence behind it for what these chemicals are, how they interact with each other, et cetera, et cetera. So if we think about our understanding of consciousness, experiences, colors, feelings, emotions, joy, bliss, pain, hatred, and, and what those things actually feel like, what those things actually are like. Our understanding of that, the argument goes, is akin to what alchemy was, basically guesswork, <laughs> not yeah. really knowing how these things link together. And so the idea is, what can we do to turn this into a kind of chemistry of experience? Um, yeah. So as you say, we maybe now are starting to understand the building blocks and the amino acids, as it were, in the, in the metaphor of consciousness, but most of the work is still to be done. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, we think the, um, maybe the initial Rosetta Stone, the, the thing that's kind of a, where we get a lot of traction is a uh, valence. Yeah. I mean, for a lot of consciousness researchers, I mean, valence, for those who don't know, it's the pleasure pain axis. Is yeah. That why, you know, the, how, how good or bad an experience feels. For a lot of researchers, they think valence is just a very complex thing. It's kind yeah. of these like high level evaluation of uh, the value of an experience. Yeah. Or, um, a lot of researchers, the researchers think it has something to do with reinforcement learning, like reward and uh, prediction errors. Right. We think like actually all of that is incidental. Like according to our theory, you're going to have like very pleasant experiences that are completely predictable. Like that's, there's some correlation between like reward and pleasure, but they're not the same thing. Sure. But no, in our theory, essentially very pleasant experiences are actually very simple. Mm -hmm. Extreme cases are things like the jhanas or like these very highly concentrated states of consciousness. And, you know, the people describe them as like, yeah, the sphere of infinite space, for example. Yeah. Or infinite consciousness, which has like no content, but like consciousness aware of itself. Yeah. Consciousness without an object. That's yeah. how they describe it. And if you enter those states, they're very blissful. They're like incredibly fulfilling and beautiful, even though they have almost no content. Sure. But they're rejuvenating. So what's going on with that? 
my current understanding is that symmetry is definitely involved. And symmetry essentially is kind of a proxy for even stress, like essentially like regularized stress, because when you have a more symmetrical state of consciousness, uh, essentially the stress is more evenly distributed. So symmetry, symmetry of what? And what exactly do you mean by symmetry? Exactly. It's kind of tricky because it's not symmetry of, let's say, the stimuli. I mean, that is correlated, but the thing that really matters is symmetry of the mathematical object (laughs) that corresponds to consciousness. Sure. So this, yeah, this is what we were, original point here. So yeah, my understanding of it as someone who's not so mathematically inclined, more Mm. verbally (laughs) inclined as we were talking about the Ashkenazi... Oh yeah, Happy New Year, by the way. Oh, Happy New Year, yes, yes. But yeah, so my understanding is that whatever you think of maths, whatever you think of whether you think that you're like Max Tegmark, you think the universe is maths, or you think maths is just a really convenient tool that we've invented, whatever. Maths as, as something that, whatever its metaphysical status, is something that can represent things um, and represent things very in a very detailed way experiences as things that exist in the world with details and features of them should be representable by maths so for any given experience we're talking about valence because it is the kind of the (laughs) go-to modality of experience arguably it's the the primary modality of experience Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah so, you know, you think of, let's take an experience. So sledging down the hill when you're seven and it's mm-hmm. snowing mm-hmm. and your mom's calling you in because she's made food and it's going to go cold. You know, that's a almost uterinely blissful memory. There's, there's, it's not just... Because when the reason valence came along as a concept to replace... Pleasure is it, is it, it's deeper, it's richer, it incorporates feelings of, of meaning or, or um, you know, that, that are associated with bliss rather than just sort of aroused yeah. pleasure that kind of give hedonism a bad name, you know, people think of, <laughs> of people, you know, shooting up in heroin and, and, and that's kind of where, where it ends, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, anyway. So you take a given experience. So that's, that's, you know, it could be anything that other, you know, other high valence experiences, seeing a child being born. If you're listening, have never had a child, finding something you thought, finding your keys when you thought you'd lost them, you know, any, any variety of experience, just take one. So sliding down a hill, the memory of that, you know, that experience for that experience, there should exist a mathematical object. Mm-hmm that's isomorphic to that experience. Yeah. So that means to say that you can represent that experience not only mathematically, but geometrically. So you could have a mathematical shape, a mathematical representation that represents and is corresponding to every aspect of felt aspect of that experience. That's right. So if you take that as a starting point, Mm-hmm. If you have these shapes or these ways of mathematically modeling experiences, then you could take setting down a hill, and then you could take finding the keys when you thought you'd lost them. Then you could take 
having your heart broken by by an unrequited love, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and then then you could take stubbing your toe <laughs> and and take all of these mathematical shapes, all of these these mathematical models for them, and then compare them, and then that's when you start to look for patterns. And so, in the same way as as chemistry started to do, okay, let's model this chemical. Let's look at its bases. Let's look at its components and let's represent it in a way that we can, you know, so I, I feel like a lot of, you know, people may be put off by this because, so, well, an experience is an experience and, and you're sort of trying to unweave the rainbow and perhaps it's it's like, a, you know, it precludes any spirituality or it's a kind of deadening of, of consciousness. But I don't think there's any inherent metaphysical interpretation of what you're doing. The maths could either be an explanation for these experiences or you could just view it as a tool, you know, and most of the original hyper-religious people were mathematicians and saw maths (laughs) as looking into the mind of God anyway. So I I think think that drawback that a lot of people have with it, because a lot of people that that would be interested in this kind of stuff, I think are prone to spiritual belief. Um, I think think that, that kind of... I, I completely understand that kind of reservation, but yeah, I, 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 w- I would just hasten at this point to say that it's not. So it's a real limitation or, or a real issue. Yeah. So you're using maths, whatever you conclude, explanation for, for, for consciousness, you're using maths as a tool to, to make experiences what we call operationalizable. You know, something that we can not only understand, but do something about. So yeah, so in the same way that you had chemists comparing their, their models of, of chemicals and suddenly having a, a science of chemistry, that's what you're trying to do with consciousness. Yeah. How how accurate is that? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's very good. That's very good. Yeah, I mean, and to, to your point, I mean, we're definitely not like against spirituality in, in any way. I mean, like, first of all. <laughs> If it is true, you know, that there's like, let's say like other dimensions, like dimensions you experience on DMT or something are actually out there and you're interacting with them. You know, like qualia formalism, which is this idea that every experience corresponds to a mathematical object can still be true. I mean, it's just maybe there's like other dimensions of consciousness too. Mm-hmm. It just maybe they have like different physics, but ultimately they will be mathematically describable. Yeah, yeah. And so even if God exists, you know, I think God will follow mathematical properties. Yeah, yeah. Like it, the mind of God is made of math as well. In a way that's not necessarily reducible. It can just be a way of, of interrogating it, a way of yeah. understanding it, a way of representing it. Exactly. In the same way you you might want to represent God through a painting, or through a song, or through a, you know, it's a different way of exactly. <laughs> representing it. One that you can, you can do more with exactly. in this context. But you, yeah. you can model it, you can find let's say, you know, what, how to get rid of the suffering in it. Well, yeah, you can do more with it in a technological sense, in a, yeah. in a biomedical sense, yeah. you know, which is sort of, yeah, how, how, I guess how you found yourself to this through David Pierce kind of ideas. Yeah. I mean, the, the concept, kind of like formalizing it, it's called the qualia formalism of the mathematic, you know, the asymorphism between experiences and mathematical objects. That's... Uh, from Mike Johnson, my mm-hmm. co-founder, the Qualia Research Institute. And then he also postulated the uh, symmetry theory of valence. Yeah, to our listeners, check out the Principia Qualia, which yes. is 
Mike's magnum opus, yes. which explores yeah. all of this with some incredible like visual representations of, of what we're talking about. Uh, yeah. But yeah, please continue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, not just to be the symmetry theory of valence presented in Principia Qualia, it's uh, it's really kind of just like a educated guess. I mean, it's like yeah. very, very high level. But then, yeah, we decided to create this institute. And since then, you know, we've become way more kind of concrete to the point that we actually can make like precise empirically testable predictions yeah. uh, that we can investigate with neuroscientific tools like fMRI and EEG. And also neurotechnology like body vibration and audio and stroboscopic stimulation. And so far, every way in which I have tested the symmetry theory of valence, it seems to be true. Like harmony, for example, is one kind of symmetry. It's like symmetry over time. And uh, synchrony as well is a certain kind of uh, symmetry. And for example, on psychedelic states of consciousness, when you experience like pretty symmetrical patterns, usually they are like higher valence. Yeah. Then we experience like chaotic, dissonant, out of tune, irregular patterns. Pain, for example, tends to be kind of like spiky and irregular and chaotic, whereas kind of like very pleasurable tactile sensations tend to be made of regular harmonious wave without blockages. Um, so when you say that, it, yeah. that's from fMRI. It's it's a mixture. So okay. it's mostly phenomenology, like just like people pain. describing yeah. inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a wonderful book called uh, "Seeing That Freeze," which is a uh, is right. That's yeah. a suitcase. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's a nice Can suitcase. I grab it? <laughs> By Rob Rubia. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, I was looking at this earlier. Huh? I was I was spying that uh, nice. this book nice. earlier. Yeah. Very, very good book, full of kind of like instructions for how to achieve samadhi and a very beautiful states of consciousness. But it's very interesting. I mean, he talks also, I mean, he talks about like how like there's a correspondence between suffering and patterns of tension and irregularities. Right. And how like deep samadhi is actually a state where there's no irregularities in your consciousness. It's actually just a smooth geometric field. Right, and so there's like kind of a lot of converging points. That remind like this feels similar to the kind of like Epicurean kinds of like his idea of um, what is it? Oh, this is my like uh, philosophy BA, kinesthetic pleasure, I believe is mm. the ultimate form of pleasure which comes from the absence of desire. Mm. So it's, it's, a, it's a similar kind of idea that when you strip things away and you're free of perturbations or free of desires. That is that kind of smoothness. That's yeah. the, the, that kind of absence. And I guess in the Buddhist and the Hindu traditions, they call it you know nothingness or clear the clear light of sort of nothingness. Um, yeah, there's that. There's that kind of yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly like experience. He in in the book, for example, he talks about how if you pay close attention to your phenomenology, any craving manifests as a pattern of tension in your energy body. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that's you get, exactly what I say. Yeah, you can actually reduce a craving by relaxing parts of your body that are tense. <laughs> There's like hacks that way, and exactly when you're like in a fully desireless state of consciousness that is very pleasant. There's no pattern. There's no like irregular patterns of tension in your, you know, energy body. It's yeah, very, very esoteric sounding, but really it's just like phenomenology. But then also from the point of view of neuroimaging. 
if you analyze the brain waves of somebody in what's called a meditative cessation, which is like one of the peak states of meditation, yeah, essentially there's a tremendous amount of like coherence across all channels and across all frequencies that corresponds to like a very high amount of regularity and symmetry. And similarly, if you analyze the brainwaves of somebody on 5-MeO-DMT, which is a very powerful psychedelic yeah. that makes you feel that everything is one and it's very, very blissful. Likewise, the brainwaves are like incredibly regular and harmonious. Harmonious in what sense? Yeah, yeah. So, so harmony in what's called a one-dimensional case, which is like most of music theory, is literally where you have distribution of sounds on the spectrum where you have like a fundamental which is like the lowest frequency it is a frequency peak let's yeah. say like 400 hertz or something yeah and then you also have what's called the the partials which is like additional like notes right and for them to be harmonious means that they are like intergermultiples of the fundamental yeah so like if you have like a 400 hertz tone you will also have like some energy in the 800 hertz frequency and then right. somewhere like the, so like the overtone exactly. harmonic. Right. When you say like the overtones are harmonic, it means that they're intergermultiples. Because right. you also have like inharmonic instruments, for example, uh, tubular bells or xylophones, mm -hmm. where like if let's say the fundamental is 400 hertz, maybe the Maybe the overtones might be something like 650 or like some other random. That's why they sound weird. I mean, mm. they're kind of like out of tune. It's very difficult to make a musical scale for them. Right. And musical scales, in a way, the way they work is by aligning the harmonics. So how do those inharmonious notes differ mathematically to the harmonious? Oh, it means that the overtones are not perfect. Integer multiples. Right. And what's an integer multiple? <laughs> oh, so, I mean, as I was explaining, like, if you have like a 400 hertz, okay. you will also have the overtone being 800, like 800, 800, so 800, 1200, 1600, right. and so on. They kind of fold into each other. Yeah. Exactly. The, if you look at the waveform, essentially you get this symmetrical like wave packets. Right. Where like the waves perfectly aligned with each other and like you can segment it out and and that's why it is like symmetry over time. And if you represent them geometrically, mm -hmm. do you get fractals? No, you would get a simple, let's say like simple polygons. Right. Like, like this, like, like this kind of thing. <laughs> yes. So you can't see about holding up the symbol of the Quality Research Institute. Yeah. Which is a very beautiful, shiny one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight-sided shape? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're like eight colors. Octahedron. Octagon. Yeah. See, like, little people fighting inside it. Yeah, so, and then I'm guessing in harmonic series, don't look, generate such yeah. symmetrical shapes. They don't, they don't repeat. Yeah. I mean, like, if you take, like, two numbers at random, the minimum common multiple will be very large. Yeah. Right. Because they don't fit with each other properly. Yeah. And then, then, then there's the experience of inharmony as well. So they sound discordant. They sound yeah. jarring. Exactly. Whereas you, you play a harmony together and it sounds pleasing. It sounds yeah. concordant. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it also has to do with uh, beat patterns where you have like, if you have two frequencies that are close to each other, but not perfectly, 
exactly the same. We have like 400 hertz and 405, mm -hmm. I would say. They will start overlapping in weird ways where like the amplitude will go up and down and up so and that's down. That's why you get this sort of the binaural exactly. kind of technology stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and if you only have one beat pattern, it's fine because you can track it and like it's still somewhat symmetrical. But when you have like, let's say, like, you know, if you take like the notes in the piano and like use your, you, the palm of your hand, you know, to, to press a bunch of notes that are like next to each other. Yeah. It sounds very discordant, right? That's because there's like an intractable number of a lot of beat patterns interacting with each other, creating these chaotic structures. Yeah. And that does not repeat for like a very long while. And the brain just doesn't know how to, doesn't know how to like segment that out into like easily comprehensible packets. So it's actually very stressful to listen to that. So the cure, you've, you've done now experiments with. Mm -hmm. Technology, you know, technology we yeah. have feedbacking. We've done a lot of research on like body vibration and audio and visual stimulation. Essentially, we were trying to create the music theory for body vibration. Right. I find that fascinating because you can buy like a massage chair, right? Mm -hmm. But if you if you buy a massage chair, Usually they sell it with like a few settings, right? It's like, oh, like setting one to five. And it's like, they're like slightly different patterns, right? Like that's not what we're doing. Like we're doing something much more interesting, which is using a system where you can like translate out any waveform, like essentially any sound into vibration. Mm -hmm. So like it doesn't even need to be made of like pure tones. It could be like, Literally any, and you can take like the sound of a train mm -hmm. and translate it into vibration. But the point is that we've explored a lot of kinds of vibrations. You know, I spent like six months researching this and trying it, you know, hours and hours on myself with all kinds of things. And what happens is that the vast majority of vibrations are actually like unpleasant. They're like ensogenic, you know, they make you like feel weird mm -hmm. and, or dissociated or Nauseous. Nauseous. Yeah. Nauseous, exactly. Or typically it's like dizzy. anxiety. Yeah. Dizzy. Physical sensations yeah. as well. It's mental. But if you input like essentially like uh, what's called like variable amplitude harmonic sounds, essentially harmonic combinations that go up and down slowly over a couple minutes, those are like deeply relaxing and pleasant, right? Like rejuvenating and and they're all essentially like super, have like super high levels of harmony. So what do you think this means for consciousness? Essentially, it means that pleasure and pain seems to follow like mathematical properties and it has to do with symmetry, regularity, and harmony. And uh, I mean, I, I have the you know mathematical theory behind this, which is more sophisticated. I mean, how to describe it is like, like music is like a, the true mathematics of pleasure and pain is kind mm -hmm. of this high dimensional object. Mm -hmm. Music is a projection of it from a certain angle. Okay. And then like vibrations are like a different projection of it. And then like how light stimulation feels good or bad is another projection. Yeah. But they're all reflections of these like underlying mathematical shape, which encodes just how symmetrical a stimuli is. Which when represented as shapes, would create these kinds of repeating yes. patterns rather than if it was more asymmetrical, the shapes would break down. You wouldn't get 
these kinds of repeating squares, repeating yeah. polygons. Exactly. You get the, something that's constantly shifting and right. doesn't converge. So the, the, when represented, the underlying mathematical structures of more meaningful, more blissful, more pleasant experiences are mathematically, you think, more symmetrical. Yep musically more harmonious and <laughs> geometrically more repeating and, and geometric yeah. <laughs> for a bond of better term. Yeah. Interesting. So using music is the, the way of looking at this, you know, what does that mean that, that there is one objective ultimate piece of music that would be the most <laughs> beautiful piece of music that would be the most symmetrical that we're all striving to because it, it seems yeah. to me that that, that that there's and this is maybe where I depart somewhat from David you know where I have my reservations just on the broadness of experience and yeah, how, yeah. how valence in dubitably incredibly important ethically incredibly important yes you know especially with the elimination of the sort of minus 10, with yeah. minus 10 being the worst possible experience, those kinds of experiences for sure. But when just considering value and exploring yeah. the state space of consciousness and, and the universe, you know, looking at it musically, what we're drawn to surely in music, in music is, is massive varieties of yeah. experience, massive combinations of experience. People enjoy music that follows irregular patterns sometimes or, yeah. or incorporates difficult emotions or, uh, you know, has a personality to it, has a uniqueness to it that maybe departs from, I don't know. So, so would, would there be one ultimate piece of music that would be following and representing these highly symmetrical yeah. shapes that would be the ultimate piece of music would be representative of the, the, the most optimal, the most desirable experience? Um, yeah. Or... <laughs> you think of something like Rachmaninoff, like a Rachmaninoff um, uh, <laughs> opus, and it's it's not that it's not following it's not following some ultimate representing some ultimate hyper symmetrical geometric shape, but you know in its twists and its turns, um, in its harmony and its it, there is still like massive geometry, massive yeah. symmetry. So is, is it, yeah, I guess my question is, um, is, is, would it be the case that there would be one sort of ultimate piece of music, one sort of ultimate way of experiencing that things striving towards or more that there, there could be this variety of music, variety of experiences that would just, when mapped, follow twisting and turning geometric I think, patterns? I mean, I, I do think there's, probably like a, a hierarchy of heaven, uh, as it were. Uh -huh. And the upper ranges will be very, very, very symmetrical, but also very, very energized. And that's kind of the, the territory of like Janus and, and 5MEO DMT. And they are very symmetrical and like they're more kind of like in the home yeah. territory. Why do we enjoy Reichman enough? Actually, we have a, a whole explanation for that, and it involves understanding that essentially the brain also has this thing we call the boredom mechanism. Mm -hmm. So essentially, when you're experiencing the same thing over and over, your brain evaluates, okay, I'm not learning anything new. Mm -hmm. And so it injects dissonance. 
so that you don't get stuck in a local maxima. I mean, essentially, if we didn't have the border mechanism, we would just like be, you know, staring at, at a lake or something for yeah. our life. Which I did one first time I took acid. Yeah. yeah. Stared at a lake yeah. for eight hours straight. I mean, before I was jumping, I was just. That's the thing, like, psychedelics disable the boredom mechanism. Interesting. Like, you can't take LSD and, like, you're bored. Yeah. I mean, you may feel despair or something else, but, like... You're not bored, yeah. No, you're not bored. (laughs) You maybe wish you were bored. (laughs) Maybe, yeah, exactly. You wish it was dull. You wish it back. You wish the mechanism back, yeah. So is that similar in any way to... I don't know, you have a big interest in perfume and and smell. My understanding of, of perfume is that this may be a myth, but my understanding is that in very, very pleasing perfumes, they've found empirically that if they put a tiny, almost like homeopathic, like very small yeah. amount of fecal oh, yeah, yeah, smell yeah. It, yeah. In, yeah, in with the beautiful luxurious chemicals, without the people knowing, <laughs> they actually that like the experience yeah. of beautiful smells with a little bit of shit in yeah. them, people report as being more more deep and more rich and yeah. more satisfying than the experience that has none of the Yeah, shit. yeah. Well and, and it doesn't have to be like fecal. There's like many other like right. slightly unpleasant, slightly like rough smells. Mm-hmm. Whether it's like sharp, alde- aldehydic or alcoholic or um spicy like original. There's like a bunch of slightly off like oh like uh, or cheesy like <laughs> like rotten cheese like uh there's this thing called uh valeric acid okay tiny amounts exactly like yeah make it interesting but here's the thing like the reason that works and also the reason why imperfection in music or like Brachman enough and things like that is that well there's twofold the one is like it's a way of like overcoming the border mechanism mm-hmm. but then secondary is like slightly surprising and then surprise causes an energy spike. Essentially, whenever you're surprised, you will have like a spike of energy. It intensifies your experience because your brain is trying to figure out kind of like working over time. It's like, okay, there's something, additional information that doesn't understand. So, and ultimately the total valence of your experience is a function of the shape, essentially how symmetrical it is, times how energetic it is. Mm-hmm. So when you add a little bit of something that's surprising, you're going to be multiplying the energy. Interesting. You may reducing the valence a little bit, but the overall positive valence, once you take into yeah. account the multiplication, may be much larger. Make it more like a roller coaster than, yeah. uh, than a merry-go-round. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, you work with music, like you, you will, here, here's, you know, something we could predict from first principles, but then it's also empirically the case. The people who like very weird music, mm. right, are people who have already listened to so much other music. But it's right. kind of like you're at a stage where you need that extra weirdness right. to not feel bored. Do you think that's that's all of there is? Though? I mean, so how about, you know, okay, Radiohead or yeah, yeah, yeah. music, yeah, music that feels more. like people that listen to music that feels like it's incorporating some kind of depth of emotion. Yeah. Often music maybe people might refer to as sad or depressing. Yeah. 
I think there's the case to be had that, that there's music that's exploring sadness, explores yeah. bittersweet, vulnerable, and I guess the beauty that can exist in those states. But more what I think's more interesting in this discussion would be music that's not really exploring sadness per se uh, or negative experience, but feels that it not only in, in being pleasing and being beautiful and being you know, satisfying or maybe representative of some symmetry, not only being exciting and twisting and turning, feels like it, it's expressing some depth, some yeah. personal beauty, some something like that. How does that fit into yeah. well, this, all of this? There's two things. I mean, first of all, you will prefer music that actually causes resonance in you. So, and you can really only resonate to things you can relate to. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you've been in a very like emotionally mixed mood for a while, and you listen to like very happy songs, it, it sounds fake, mm-hmm. right? It's not fake because you can have people who are like just legitimately very happy, yeah, and they will say like, "No, this is very beautiful." They, they but yeah, if, if you are in a very mixed state. Pure happiness sounds fake, but mm-hmm. but I think it's just like it just doesn't resonate with you. Mm. But then it's the, interesting, yeah. So yeah. It's about the resonance, yeah, more than than the actual shape of the the stimuli. I mean, yeah. and and that's why the symmetry theory valence applies to the shape of the experience, yeah. not the shape of the stimuli. Sure, sure. It's just that they're correlated. I think this is maybe uh, some of the, some of the issues, some of the drawback, like with with this field, because it is so. <laughs> unfamiliar to be incorporating phenomenology into science in yeah. this way. You know, uh, we, we're so glued into thinking <laughs> about the objects of, of our inquiry as, as these fixed, non-experiential things. Yeah. But yeah, rerouting it into thinking, well, the symmetry, the, the, the harmony has to concord with your own resonance. So if, yeah. If you're in a sad mood or, or, you know, more complex than that. If for whatever reason, what lights you up and makes you feel resonant is some kind of weird, intense, janky techno or, <laughs> you know, that, that, then that is, would be creative of, of more resonance and more yeah. symmetry. But yeah, it's fa- fascinating. Like thinking, yeah. thinking about things in terms of music. Yeah, and it's and it's more than a metaphor. <laughs> yeah, it is more than a metaphor. Um, there's you know here an, a- an actual how far you want to go with it, but you know an, a- an actual base scientific theory of, of how things are actually resonating and harmonizing yeah. with each other on, on a variety of levels and, and, and scales. Yeah, so and it, you know, it's, non-scientifically, it's something that I feel in my life. You know, to me, one of the most important things is is connection with other people and my personal life, my relationships. And I find that's always what I return to, you know, from, from a consideration of what feels most meaningful. Yeah. All, often always is my, my relationships. And, and as I've grown older, as I've become more of an adult, in my early relationships, there was a lot more infatuation, a lot more, again, similar to the, what I was just saying about treating objects as irrespective things out there in the universe irrespective of an experiential rhythm with them um but yeah as, I, as i've got older my my experience of of relationships and and care and love and and connection felt much more rooted in what you call some kind of harmony yeah you know so i, I would say like the, the people that 
mean the most to me uh, are the people that I feel I resonate with, are people that I feel there's a harmony with. When you speak, it's it's sort of like music, you know, and maybe maybe improvisational jazz. It takes a while to to get there, but it feels like you're sort of doing music together. And then yeah. the people that, that really matter to me are the ones that that I feel, for whatever reason, for whatever psychotherapeutic reason, why it leads me to feeling like I, I harmonize with them. And yeah, and then that's what's more what is more the music that you create with people, and and and, and why there is this ineffable sort of feeling harmony with them but yeah so I, I would say in my own life uh, you know and I am a musician as well so obviously I do I do think about music a lot and incorporate it into my life but yeah this this way of thinking about the world musically uh, I think is is accurate and very beautiful as well yeah I mean the the couple of things to to add clarity to this and I mean, sure. I, everything you said I, I I agree with and resonate with it's you may, oftentimes you will find that um, two dissonant sounds put together, they can be co-consonant. <laughs> like in an emergent effect, yeah. you get a consonant relationship. I think that also explains why, like, yeah, people who are like very sad will enjoy sad music mm-hmm. because the sad music will be a complement yeah. to their own dissonant. That together they will form a consonant. Sure. And then the, the last one, which explains the more hard, the most hardcore music, things <laughs> like uh, Merzbau or yeah, uh, yeah, 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 or going to my bloody Valentine yeah. concert. That I understand it as those are like patterns that are like actually designed to be destructive, that are useful if you're already so messed up <laughs> that you need to like, kind of like destroy the patterns inside you. Sure. Like if, if you have like suicidal ideations, like very heavy intrusive thoughts or something, like heavy noise music will shut that down. Yeah. So so it's still trying to improve valence and harmony is just like yeah in a completely circuitous way. Yeah, I, I, I'd suggest that it's that I agree, and I think there's more more as well that you can expand yeah. on with that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think because I, I you know I just think I know. I remember a friend of mine, his brother was in like a hardcore heavy metal, like extreme hardcore <laughs> band. And he always said that he, his brother and, and the people in that band were like monks. They were like in their <laughs> real life, they were like these Zen yeah. monks. So, so I think maybe even if you don't have, even if you're not super messed up more That's than right. an ordinary person, you know, yeah. you, you have just a traditional psyche of whatever, but you're throwing all this like uh, <laughs> hardcore heavy metal at it, it does seem to, it seems to result in this, this serenity. Yeah. This, this peaceful, yeah, I don't know what it's doing, but it, but it, I think it, 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 that, that, that it, it's a wonderful yeah. example. I mean, I think my immediate off the top of my head theory there would be it's increasing equanimity. Yeah. I mean, very similar to like, if you're eating super hot peppers, like once a week or something, you learn to kind of just accept it and not resist it. Mm-hmm. And then you translate that to the rest of your life mm-hmm. and you can endure a, you know, a very intense social awkwardness or very intense yeah. cold or something like that. Like it generalizes. So yeah, the, the Zen, you know, heavy metal, some, well, it's important to know too, like Merzbau, you know, the super famous Japanese noise mm-hmm. artist. He's a uh, practicing Jain. Uh, Interesting. He sleeps four hours a day and, and wakes up meditates for an hour 
and then spends 16 hours producing noise music. Wow. Yeah, and he's a vegan activist. This is like very interesting person. <laughs> interesting, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting how he loops back to like David, like, you know, that, that it's still that kind of impetus, that imperative to, you know, reduce suffering, sentient life. Just a completely different way of thinking about it. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess we do. We do what we can, and we do what what feels right for us. And, and yeah. Because <laughs> I think, as as well as, there's a lot of issues that people may have with this project yeah. of the Quality Research Institute and debates that can be had, whatever. But fundamental about the approach about what it means etc etc i do think one of more advanced drawbacks or or issues something to consider you know objection not objection but just yeah something to be considered is taking a step and step at a time and obviously picking one variable of experience we talked about this before picking one variable of experience at a time seems to be okay well you could do that you know okay so if we're just looking at valence we're just comparing the, the balance of experience to experience. We're getting patterns for them. But then when you start to combine valence with perception, with, yeah. with, with every other aspect <laughs> of, of experience, these are you know, words for things that the Inuits <laughs> may have words yeah. for, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever, all combined together, all interacting with each other, then that the, the task seems potentially incredibly difficult, if not impossible but we were talking before about actually if this musical way of understanding consciousness holds and and, and works then it might not actually be such a difficult task yeah uh, what you talk a bit about that yeah i mean it, it, it will be something like clearly a variety as we call it you know whether it's like colors or sounds yeah. or tactile sensations will have its associated symmetry groups and then it's intrinsic theory as a consequence. And then from that, you will have like joint music theories where like audiovisual, for example, will have a particular way of interacting and being coherent with each other. Mm-hmm. That we will be predicated on like what is the overlap of the mathematical symmetries of both. Yeah. And then, yeah, peak experiences like let's say DMT, meeting God on DMT or something like yeah. that is precisely the overlap of like all the sensory modalities where it's like, okay, this is harmonious at the level of light. It's harmonious in sound. It's harmonious in touch. Mm-hmm. And when they all come together, that's okay. This is perfect harmony across all the senses. Right Now, because it's just the overlap of all of those is actually going to be very restrictive. So like in some sense, like, you know, multi-sensory God experience, actually there's only a few of them. Whereas like visually harmonious things, there's like a lot of them. Just like they may not go well together with other sure. senses. And, and that's part of the beauty of actually like restricting things. Like mm-hmm. if, if your art is just like, let's say, audio and touch. Yeah. There are some harmonies there that just don't exist with like visual yeah. qualia. So like, and I, I do value a lot, like understanding the entire state space. I mean, there's yeah. because like the, the, the additional point of the equation is that this connects to kind of like antinatalism. <laughs> You, you want some, not only something that is blissful, but also that is sustainable and can reproduce, right? Because otherwise you will be just outcompeted by things that maybe suffer, but are good at making copies of themselves. Yeah. So in the end, you do want kind of the, the perfect balance between bliss and intelligence and mm-hmm. ability to reproduce. And, and that's not going to be perfect bliss. 
it's going to be maybe not the best, but uh, it's going to be very interesting and very worthwhile and complex and rich. And, yeah. And I think, yeah, ultimately, that's what the future is going to be, be about, finding those compromises. Sure. Yeah, and I guess within that, there would be infinite combinations and infinite possibilities yeah. of, of the state space of, of consciousness and how these things would interact with each other. But the overarching rules would be fairly limited. You yeah. know, it's kind of a sandbox. And, and I guess, yeah, the idea would be like infinite tones, infinite combinations of, of tones. But actually, when we when we go into music theory, the rules and the structures that govern them are, are actually fairly easy to predict. And, yeah. and, and, and <laughs> so that, that would be the hope with the massive variety of consciousness. You'd basically be able to find the keys and the modulations exactly. of... of, of Pain interacting with with love, interacting with hatred, you know, and it wouldn't actually be this monumental, impossible task. It might be a bit easier. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think it's going to be ultimately very tractable. Yeah, maybe maybe not something you can compute in your head, but definitely something you can compute in a computer and and try it out on yourself. And yeah, I mean, it's I mean, like like physics, where it's like the laws of physics turn out to be surprisingly simple. Of course, they give rise to very yeah. strange chaotic behavior, but like, you know, Maxwell's equations, or you can write them in a t-shirt, essentially. But then the payoff of this, so the, the point of all of this, you then are able to, to do this and computationally, you know, understand consciousness and is then what you can do with it, right? And then yeah. we're going back to the original thing of, of you know, <laughs> David Pierce and yeah. It's amazing. I'm going to go travel the world, tell everyone we're all this open, big individual, like individuals. <laughs> we're all one consciousness. But fuck, actually, I need to stop suffering. Actually, fuck this. There's some yes. people with with cuts and wounds and, and tears, and that's much more important to deal with yeah. first. Um, exactly. So the QRI and everything we've just been discussing this this potential future way of an emerging way of of scientifically mapping and subtracting understanding consciousness what then we do with it what's the point of this what can you do with it yeah it's so many things i mean one of them for example is um you can point to this theory at other species you can probably rank species by how much they suffer my guess is that some species suffer way more than others by default like it may be the case that like crickets Mm. are like it's it's an unpleasant life because they're full of dissonances and yeah they're always in a dissonant state. They're just trying to minimize it. Whereas, I, guess, I, don't think, I don't think it's real, but it's a supposed recording of crickets chirping will slow down. And it's incredibly beautiful. Like, oh, really? like okay. a low hum. Maybe there's yeah, a you know, great exactly. zen. Exactly. It's a magical state of being. Until we know how much each species suffer, like how are we going to prioritize who to help? Mm-hmm. And, and the same for like things like um, prioritizing like which diseases to cure. But then the most promising to me is like, right. it, it's not only prioritization, it's also it gives you the cure potentially. But it's like in sound, for example, if you, this is one of the things that we've done is like we have these algorithms where we can take a sound, analyze it, identify the dissonances in the sound and then cancel those out selectively in such a way that you keep as much of the information as possible but then it's not dissonant anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's like, I think we will have something like that for experience. Like you would have like an 
experience analyzer identifies well actually your 17th and 19th brain harmonic right. are in a state of dissonance. So that's like tune down one of those while leaving everything else the same. And then all of a sudden it's like, wow, I don't feel anxiety for some reason. Right. Like it's, it's going to be very, very precise. Because Would that be a, like a genomic change? It might not even need to be that. Like it might even be like surprisingly something like take this amino acid or something right, that right, specifically right. suppresses well, that. Some new neurotechnology that, yeah. that is able to act and, and change some like, aspect of the brain. Exactly. It's basically a form of psychiatry that's just much more in tune with yeah. much more development. I mean, our current psychiatry is, is like <laughs> the same as what it was it's 200 a, years ago, except just with some new thing that Eli Lilly is pushing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sledgehammer, right? I mean, yeah. it's like, SSRIs, they help people, mm. but they're kind of like, they have so many effects and they're like very, very broad. And like, and then like, of course we have things I consider horrible. I mean, again, like maybe they're, they're useful in some extreme mm. circumstances, but things like uh, antipsychotics. Yeah. But like high dose antipsychotic and ends up feeling kind of like, um, like Parkinson's. Right. And just despite the massive leaps and bounds have made in neuroscience and we're not really doing anything massively different when it comes to treating people. And from a social and a, a more emotional perspective, not in any way considering really, you know, people's lived experiences. Yeah. So yeah, you would, you would, with this computational scientific understanding of consciousness, much more accurately and advancedly be able to, like, a, it's like precision neuro phenomenology yeah. <laughs> as, as in to say that you can precisely be able to identify which neurological aspects of your experience are causing you suffering or not and act on them and, yes. and have a cure for things like depression have a cure for potentially yeah. through some kind of technology yeah uh, some kind of techno science emerging through yeah, that's exactly the idea. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it does. Talking to David, you know, going back to to why we're doing all this, you know, he said to me that ultimately he's most fascinated by just exploring experience and the varieties yeah. of experience. And I think, you know, us talking here, you know, there's so much excitement about these varieties of states of experience and and exploring that and understanding that. But there is this pressing, urgent concern you know, of ethically, what do we need to do? Yeah. But there seems to be the good fortune that the two hopefully seem to coincide. I think there's yeah. synergistic. Yeah. I mean, I, I was talking with David about this today when he, he's open to it, but he, he kind of thinks it's like, well, it would be a, a huge coincidence if like they actually are like go hand in hand. But no, I, I, I don't think so. And like, yeah, they intersect precisely in things like theories of valence or like, I think it's more than a coincidence, you know, I, this is a backbone of sort of David's views as well. But, you know, the, the, uh, before we know anything, before we know two plus two equals four, before not any conception of anything, Hinduism, mathematics, logic, reality, we have ex- experiences, <laughs> yes. you know, and, and the primary way that experience is mediated is Balance is, is yeah. you know, the, the initial way you, ex, you experience any experience with all the varieties to it is how enriching, how engaging, how does this feel, how positive, how negative it is. And, and 
I think it would be more than a coincidence because that seems to be the, the fundamental way of experiencing reality, the primary source of all of our knowledge. Yeah. Um, and if we take some kind of monistic view of the physical universe, the physical universe is conscious or has, you know, some variety of David Chalmers schools, you know, type F monism, some variety of viewing reality where experience is, is in some way enmeshed with physical reality, then it's not a coincidence. Then we're actually learning something fundamental about the universe when we're interrogating the varieties of experience. Yeah. Um, deeper than that, who's to say? I don't know. But yeah, it would be more than a coincidence. It would be a, it would be a reflection of, of the fundamental nature of everything. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Again, this musical thing. I remember once, I think you said, or so, I, I, I had this view as well. Somehow the universe is trying to become music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's starting off as, as not music. It's starting off as you know, singularity and emergence of matter and noise and chaos and quite literally more than a metaphor, more than just saying, mm-hmm. oh, everything is, is musical. Quite literally through consciousness, through the arising of, of the world that we live in, the universe is, is moving towards a state of being music. I agree. Um, <laughs> it sounds completely insane, but I think it's true. <laughs> yeah, it is true. <laughs> yeah, it is true in a very broad way. Like the harmonies of music, the depth of music, the, the experience of music, the richness, the aliveness, the three-dimensionality of it. That's what all the molecules in my body and your body and everyone in the duck chair, everything in Russia invading Ukraine somehow everything is yeah trying <laughs> maybe someone's playing the snare drum completely wrong and it's going really badly <laughs> over there but yeah every, everything yeah. seems to be coalescing yeah. together to actually be forming yeah <laughs> I love that yeah with that <laughs> cool man thank you everybody for uh, tuning in it's been fun <laughs> alright so you can check out Quality Research Institute online. Yeah, QRI.org. Get involved. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you, man. That was, that was, thank you. That was yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for tuning in to the first episode of the Hyper Theory podcast. We will be back soon with more interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world, I think, across philosophy, science, and the arts. If you enjoyed hearing about Andreas's work and the QRI, and you live in London, we are hosting an in-person event with the QRI at Arch One this Saturday, the 8th of October. All the information will be on the description. This podcast is produced by Starground, so you can follow us on Instagram at StargroundHQ and Hyper Theory Podcast. I've been your host, Alex Rose, and we'll see you soon. Bye.